Father, we thank you that you have seen fit to call us out of the world to yourself. You have seen fit to provide a Savior. You have seen fit to overcome the barrier of sin that exists between God and man. And we thank you that all of this was accomplished without our acts, without our will, but it was accomplished for us as a perfect gift. We thank you for showing us that gift and convincing us to receive it. In Christ's name, amen. Tonight we're still working our way through the Exodus event, and we're going to um, really, it's on page 49 in the notes, um, last time, you remember, we, we started in trying to show from verses of Scripture throughout the Exodus that, in fact, the Exodus was a momentous event. Um, this is a kind of thing that I guess I can't emphasize too much because if you don't emphasize it, you get in trouble. What happens, as I said last week, is that we like to sweep biblical events like the Exodus under the rug and make them sort of incidental to the flow of history. So the story goes somewhat like this when you study history. Well, gee, the Egyptian civilization, the Babylonians and the Sumerians, those were the key players. And the great events of history were, say, uh, the rise of Sennacherib and his invasion of uh, the middle part of the, the Mesopotamian area and out out southwest and so forth, or the Pharaoh's campaigns into Palestine, never mentioning the fact that one of the most momentous events is the Exodus. And the God of this world has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest they should receive the, the gospel truth. And we often quote that like it's applicable only to Jesus and the cross. But we have to remember that the God of this world is busy reconstructing history. And he's trying to reconstruct history so as to make the Word of God not true. To, be it, to have it mythologized, to have it not quite really true, true. And that will eat away your faith. Because no matter how much you want to try, if you're really secretly harboring unbelief, it's like a fifth column. It just wipes you out. It, takes, it saps your spiritual strength if you harbor unbelief, and frankly, most of us harbor unbelief because of the way we were educated. We were educated in a worldview since we were children that basically is antithetical to the whole scriptural view of history. And it takes you years of your life, it takes decade after decade after decade to get your head straight after an indoctrination like this. And the, and the only way to do it isn't reading books, it's just reading the book, the Bible. And what I'm trying to say, I guess, in this class is that when we read the scriptures, we want to read them as history and really mean business. That when the Bible says something happened in such and such a reign, it really happened in such and such a reign. This is not a storybook. This is history. And it should be put on the shelf with all the other history books. It's the same thing. Because if we don't have that, then everything else falls apart. So this is why on the, on the previous page, page 48, I pointed out last time this strange Egyptian papyri that was found. And that papyri, uh, for any, anybody reading the papyri, I mean, you just go down through the seven or eight different 
uh, citations I've got from that papyri. And you can see it's talking about something very, very remarkably parallel to the Exodus. The problem is scholars stumble over this piece of evidence because this happened six centuries before the Exodus, according to the existing chronology. It's sort of like, uh, golly, uh, half the uh, or three quarters of the world's surface is, is covered by sedimentary rock. And sedimentary rock only happens in water. But that can't be the flood. That is billions of years before the flood. See, it's the same thing. We, we see the evidence in front of our face. But because our, our, our presuppositions, the basic starting point we look at, the perspective with which you look at these things, is so messed up that the evidence is effectively nullified, even though it's all around us. Someday, when, when Jesus comes back, and there's such a catastrophe when he comes back, and physical universe is altered, and the sun and the moon are affected, and there's you know, meteoric showers, and there's all kinds of geologic catastrophes on Earth. When that event happens, all of a sudden people can say, gee, were we really right about the evidence of all those rocks? Maybe those were a previous catastrophe. But it won't be until we get shook up with that kind of a cataclysm that it's ever going to change the way most people think. So, um, we can't stress enough as we work through these events that these are real events and the fact that people can say, well, gee, you don't have any extra-biblical support for this means that, yes, we do, but the extra-biblical support is being explained away. Okay, tonight we continue uh, looking at the Exodus and I want to uh, start by turning to Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 34. Now, for those of you new in the Old Testament, um, remember the way the Bible is built, first five books of the Bible, <clears throat> uh, the Torah, they're considered to be, and in the Jewish canon, I think I brought the Hebrew Bible here, I think last year or something, to show you what it looked like, and we'll look at it again this year. But the Jewish way of dividing the Old Testament was Torah, Prophets, and writings. And that's their, their organization of the Old Testament. And that's why it's referred to in the New Testament. You can see that in the Gospels. So those are the three divisions. And those three divisions, at first glance, look kind of not right. Because when I use the word prophet, the word prophet sounds like somebody who prophesies about the future. But the word prophet, the way they are using the word, means somebody who is depicting the works of, uh, of God, whether it's past or future. And right now, uh, for the last year and a half, we've been looking at the Torah. And the Torah, the first five books of the Scriptures, the books of Moses. These books, of course, are seen by liberals in university campuses and in some, uh, in some religious history courses in school when they're taught by good, not good people. One we have here tonight doesn't teach that. But we have five books of the scriptures that can't possibly be written by Moses. That's the prevailing view. And that they were written later on and, and put into the name of Moses. So, of course, once you do that, then you don't have genuine history, so you can kiss off those very five books. There they go out the window. I remember growing up in a liberal church where a guy got up to preach 
and he'd go into the Gospel of John and he'd give the whole introduction to the book of John wasn't what the book was about, it was who wrote it. We can't really tell who wrote it, but we know for sure the Apostle John didn't write it. You know, there were a million people living that day. A million other people could have written it, but we're sure that John didn't write it. And that's how we start teaching the reliable scripture. Well, Deuteronomy is the last of those five books. And the thing about Deuteronomy is that uh, you've, you know, in the chemical table, deuterium, two, deutero, and nami, namas, is law, the second law. This is the second giving of the law. So that's how you can remember. So as we go through these uh, in the Old Testament, um, if you can kind of get your mind in gear about these events and have little tricks to memorize the names of the scriptures, it'll help you through the Bible. Um, because very few Christians really are, frankly, too well versed in, in the Old Testament. But in Deuteronomy chapter 4, which is Moses' second giving of the law, verse 34, he quotes God. And verse 34 is God's own interpretation of the Exodus event. Remember last year, every time we go into the flood, or we go into the fall, or we go into Adam, or we go into Eve, I always tried to go back to the New Testament and other passages of the Bible to let you see how other authors of the text interpret that text. I mean, here we are 20 centuries away, and we're telling these guys, oh, no, you didn't really get the word. This is how it ought to be understood. No, no. These guys understood it very well. We're the ones that are the stupid ones, going back 20 centuries trying to tell them how to interpret their own Bible. So it's good to go back and find out how did these guys interpret it. Well, here's God's own interpretation, right here in verse 34. And the importance of verse 34 and 35 is that it undeniably asserts that the Exodus event, this event right here, was a critical event in history, unique and never repeated. Let's look at that text carefully. Has a God, God's being sarcastic here, has, has there ever been a God who tried to go to take for himself a nation from within another nation by trials, by signs and wonders and by war and by a mighty hand and by an outstretched arm and by great terrors as the Lord your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes? In other words, it's a rhetorical question. Go ahead, name a God. Did Horus do that? Did the gods of Mesopotamia do that? Tell me one. It's a challenge. It's an open, frank challenge to show me. Show me any evidence of history of this ever occurring like this. Name it. And this is the sort of challenge the Bible throws out. But what we've done in our modern time is we've uh, totally wiped the whole thing out by reinterpreting history such that we, we lower the profile of the Exodus. Now, what we want to do tonight is move on, on our notes on page 49, to the other side of the event of the Exodus. We've, we're still looking at the meaning of this event, trying to get our, our hands on this thing that's mentioned here called the Exodus. We want to be sure that... Uh, well, we will never get into all the details, but we want to be sure that we understand some of the um, emphases in the scripture about this event so that we understand what God wants us to think about when we think about the Exodus. Remember we said try to load 
you try to use the Old Testament text as an, as an imagination loading device to load your imagination um, with pictures, and the pictures you get are, are plentiful. The, the Old Testament is full of imagery that is tremendous to load our minds with because ultimately, this is the nature of our God. And we can even in Christian circles get false notions because we read only sections of the Bible. And the only way we correct our notions of who God is and what he's really like is to go through all the scriptures and get some sort of a panoramic view. And it's fresh to go into new areas of the scripture to see, well, how does God look when he appears here versus how he looks when he appears over here? So what we want to do tonight is we want to move to the other side of the work here. We said that the work that is in here, basically we're going to see uh, next time, is the work of judgment, salvation. Same kind of theme that we saw in the Noahic Flood. This is the great doctrinal picture of the Exodus. Well, we've looked at the judgment on Egypt. Now what we want to do is come to the other side of that equation, the salvation, see what it looks like a little bit more. And we're going to deal with the problem, as I point out in my notes on page 49, the reluctant Israelites. And it may strike you as odd, but we want to look at some of these verses. Why were the Jews reluctant to be saved? They were not rushing to get out of Egypt. It's very remarkable that God not only has to judge the Egyptians, he has to go through all sorts of contortions, as it were, to get his own people out of the world system and coax them and eventually force their hand to make them leave Egypt. Now, to see how well embedded they are, if you look uh, in Ezekiel chapter 20, uh, take about halfway through the Old Testament, you'll see Ezekiel. That's the part that's never read usually. Break the binding of the Bible when you turn to Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 20. The reason that Ezekiel is um, quoted here, why he's, Ezekiel's involved with this, is because remember, when we'll get later on, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah are the prophets that lived when the nation fell. And these guys are looking back to see the pattern of God's working in history. So they're very good historians, all of them. And Ezekiel's going in chapter 20, verse 6, he sees God, and God, God speaks to him. The word of the Lord comes to him. And it says in verse 6, On that day I swore to them to bring them out from the land of Egypt into a land I had selected for them, flowing with milk and honey, which is the glory of all lands. And I said to them, Cast away each of you the detestable things of his eyes. Do not defile yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. But they rebelled against me and were not willing to listen to me. They did not cast away the detestable things of their eyes, nor did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I resolved to pour out my wrath on them, to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. But I acted for the sake of my name, that it should not be profaned in the sight of nations among whom they lived, in whose sight I made myself known to them by bringing them out of the land of Egypt. So I took them out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. You see, it's, God's not really too pleased with this exodus process. It didn't go smoothly. All right, let's see another evidence of this. If we turn over to um, Joshua, the next book after Deuteronomy that we're just in, Joshua rehearses the same 
uh, sad tale. It's a commentary on human nature. Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. Now, this is why in the notes I went over and I, I showed some of the Egyptian art forms, and we just review these for just a minute, just to think about this. Here's the gods they're talking about. This is the artistic picture, if you will, of what was on their minds. This is how they thought about the universe, their lives, their nation, reality, and their life. And in that picture, we are looking at Pharaoh painted at the same height the gods are. So Pharaoh was the grand integrator. As the king, dictator, he was the state. All hope was pinned to Pharaoh because Pharaoh kept the cocoon together. In the midst of a chaotic universe, Pharaoh gave order, Pharaoh gave peace, Pharaoh gave security. This is the worldview of Egypt. And when it says they worship gods, we're not talking about little statuettes. We're also talking about the worldview that went along with those little statuettes. And remember, uh, I'll only show you this other one to review. Remember this, this uh, particular art form here, the pillar. And we said when we went over that, that there's again an artistic rendition of the faith of Egypt, where we pointed out that here is earth, here is heaven with the sun, and here, very carefully separated from the earth, very carefully separated on the top, those two lines, uh, the welfare scepters, and in between, the name of Pharaoh. That Pharaoh is the mediator between heaven and earth. It is Pharaoh who holds everything in its place. And so the state is a grand integration of the environment, of man, of government, and we must not disturb that. The highest calling of an Egyptian is to preserve the order, not overthrow the order. So you can see when we talk about the reluctant Israelites, they had fallen into the same thing. As much as they complained about the state and their slavery to that state, when it really came to the issue of freedom, they weren't too excited. So, um, we want to uh, also turn for the grand climax to the analysis of Deuteronomy 9.24. All the other verses I've put in the notes, I won't go through those, but I'm just emphasizing some of the key verses that, where you have God's analysis of this. Why, am, why are we going through this? I guess because one of the things we want to learn about ourselves in this Exodus event is that the nature of the people who were saved is not too removed from our own nature. The Bible presents man warts and all. And we don't kid ourselves, but we are sinners, and, come, and, and being attracted to God isn't coming naturally. Whatever attraction we have for God is being the work of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. But our hearts, apart from that work, are pretty sad places. And here's an example. Here's a, God's own analysis 
of the heart of the people. Deuteronomy 9.24. It's not them, it's also us. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. Now, how's that for a real neat analysis of the people who were saved in the Exodus? Now, you know, you see, we romanticize in our fantasy about this Exodus event. It was so catastrophic, so wonderful. Oh, gee, these people just singing praises to God going out of Egypt. And yet the analysis you get is very sober in the text. That they were reluctant to leave. It was a strange work. They weren't quite trusting this God of Moses. And they were much more comfortable in this sort of structure than they were listening to Moses. This gave security. This gave order. They were familiar with this. This business of going out in the desert here with your wife and children and God knows where we're going to go, uh, that wasn't too uh, favorable in their eyes. Okay, so now we come down to uh, an analysis. On one hand, we see a terrible judgment on the Egyptians. On the other hand, we see a reluctant Israel sort of dragged out of Egypt, kicking and screaming. And we want to look and see now if we can pull this together. As I said down the bottom of the notes on page 49, what is the big picture of the Exodus? What we're going to do now is look at the Exodus event from the perspective of Abraham. See, in this, we go over this again and again, but too much, we can't have too much review. The call of Abraham preceded the Exodus. So the call of Abraham was a setup for the Exodus. So to get the meaning of the Exodus, what we're going to do is we're going to go backwards, just briefly, to the call of Abraham and ask ourselves... What did we learn about God's program with Abraham? The very program now that triggered this Exodus event. And if you remember, when we were doing that, we said that the big things that we learned with Abraham is the truth of election and the truth of justification. Because in the New Testament, those two things, every time you see Abraham's name, those two things are in the background. So since the Holy Spirit, every time he talks about Abraham, talks about those two things, we say, okay, well then that's what I'm supposed to learn about when I look at that narrative of Abraham. Well, if that's the modus operandi, if that's the way God is going to work, then the Exodus event is going to show those in action. In Abraham's case, it was an individual. In the Exodus, it's a nation. This is Abraham's family expanded. So what we want to look for is evidences in the Exodus event of these two things, these two works of God operating. So the first thing we want to do, which is I'm doing on page 50, is we're going to deal with the, the evidence of election operating. What is election? Election is God's choice in a, among a field of sinners as to his plan of salvation. God, the plan of salvation has shape. It has boundaries to it. And God beforehand designed the plan of salvation with boundaries. Everybody finally is not saved. And so there's boundaries there. And election deals with that boundary problem. Why is it bounded this way and not that way? Because God willed that history operate that way. That's the only answer you come up with, finally. So... In the Exodus event, what's the boundary? The boundary simply is that in this Egyptian society that looked like this, 
God chose a subset of that to extract out of it. And that people, that nation, was elected and chosen and removed from that world system. It's a picture, the Exodus event is a picture of believers being yanked away from the world. I mean, Christian commentators have talked about this for centuries. This is not new. Devotional literature has, has emphasized this. You read the great devotional literature, and it's always talking about making the analogy between Egypt and the world. The Exodus is believer being saved out of the world. And that's, that's good theology. That is the parallel. This goes on. Well, on page 50, I think Rush Juni, uh, this, this quote I've got, he's talking about it in political terms, but it applies spiritually. And in the case of the Exodus, it was both spiritual and political. Slaves, and I've got a misquote here, so please correct it. Slaves, true slaves, don't want. Should be don't in there. Totally opposite the way I want it. Slaves, true slaves, don't want to be rescued from freedom. Their greatest fear is liberty. Even as a timid and fearful child dreads the dark, so does the slave mind fear liberty. It is full of the terrors of the unknown. And as a result, the slave mind clings to statist or state slavery, cradled to grave welfare care, as a fearful child clings to its mother. The advantage of slavery is precisely this, security in the master or in the state. A marvelous statement. Why is slavery, what's good about slavery? I mean, it's an institution that's happened again and again in history. So it can't be all that bad. It is, to a degree, kind of, shall we say, popular. Why is it popular? Why is slavery popular with the slaves? Because their destiny is all set for them. It's secure. The master provides. And so there's, there's a comfort, strangely, there's a comfort in slavery to, in servitude. So that means that when Moses comes to the slaves, the Jewish slaves, he's disturbing this. This gives everything is at least orderly here. But when Moses walks in, just like when God called Abraham out of Ur, this is an unknown. Now we have a surprise event. Now we've got some unpredictable new factor in our lives. Now all of a sudden everything else has to be jerked around and reorganized around this strange new thing. And this is discomforting. This is disturbing. So the exodus was disturbing. And it was disturbing because it's an assertion that instead of this, where man organizes it from alpha to omega, from A to Z, it's all man's organization, the wonderful organizing work of man, all of that is sort of pushed aside. And in its place, we have this. We have an invisible God, unlike Pharaoh. We have no kingdom. Pharaoh has a kingdom. He has pyramids. He has an organization. This God doesn't have anything yet. He promises, but he hasn't shown us anything yet. And we're supposed to risk the wrath of rebelling against Pharaoh risk our home, risk our wives, risk our children on the word of Moses to abandon this wonderful order that man has structured. You see the tension here? That's election interfering. And it's a, it's a, it's a revelation of the fact that going back to God's character now, God has a character and those attributes keep showing up all over. Here's God's sovereignty. God is holy. God is love. God is omniscient. And 
this attribute, his, his, uh, over here is omnipresence. His holiness shows up. These attributes start showing up when these acts occur. And we become face to face with a God who is dangerous. That's why C.S. Lewis, in his book, he has this neat passage in the Narnia Chronicles. And one of the girls, one of the little boys in the, in the story, uh, sees Aslan. And he talks to the beaver. And he says to the beaver, um, is, he, is, he a, is he a good lion? And the beaver says, yes, he's a good lion, but he's not a tame one. Now just think about what that says. Lewis put it, captured it beautifully. He's a good lion, but he's not tame. Now put those two words together, what do you have? You have the fact that if he's not tame, he's wild. And if he's wild, who's in control? Him or you? He's in control. So this lion is not tame. He's not, he's not part of this. This order. So that's kind of scary. But the fact that he's a good lion means that even though he's a wild one, he's good, so I wind up not able to trust my leashes, my plans, my cages, but I have to trust his what? His character. And what is faith? It's trusting God's character. So, this whole fight and struggle of the Exodus has to do with tr whether the Jews are going to realize that they are being called out as a unique people to bear testimony to God's character and to trust it. Um, to see how God works, let's turn to a series of verses beginning in Exodus 5. We want to deal with these verses that are quoted in the New Testament. In five, Exodus 5.15... There's a little story here. <clears throat> it's one of the many instances. I'm going to take you through four or five of these incidents. See if you can see the common thread. Verse 15 of Exodus 5. Then the foremen of the sons of Israel, this is the slave chain gangs that were building the pyramids or building whatever they were building. Why do you deal this way with your servants? They cried out to Pharaoh. There's no straw given to your servants. Yet they keep saying to us, make bricks. And your servants are being beaten, but it's the fault of your own people. And he said, you are lazy, very lazy. Therefore you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now go and work, for you shall be given no straw, yet you must deliver the quota of bricks. And the foremen of the sons of Israel saw that they were in trouble because they were told you must not reduce your daily amount of bricks. And when they left Pharaoh's presence, they met Moses and Aaron as they were waiting for them. They said, May the Lord look upon you and judge you, for you have made us odious in Pharaoh's sight and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. That's, the, that's what, what's happening here. You see, there's a rupture happening. There used to be order here. The Jews at least got halfway along with the Egyptians. Now along comes Moses and he's a troublemaker. He stirs up. To quote a recent speech, we haven't got unity. The fragile unity is being, uh, being shaken here by this Moses. And he says that now you, you stirred up trouble in verse 21. You've made us odious in Pharaoh's sight. And Moses, of course, feels the heat. You know, what am I doing here? I'm not having success. All I'm doing is irritating people. 
And so he goes to the Lord and says, Lord, why have you brought me harm, brought harm to this people? Why did you ever send me? Ever since I've come to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done harm to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. Okay, now just think about what's going on. What's the meaning of this? The Holy Spirit put that in the text of the Scriptures. What is he teaching us here about God and his work? What does God have to do to the people in calling them? There's got to be a separation. So let's watch the separation take place. Let's turn now to chapter 8, verse 15. It doesn't happen overnight. In the middle of the plagues, all of a sudden, the frogs are dealt with. They pile them up in heaps, and they stunk, verse 14. But when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart, just as the Lord had said. Now let's turn to verse 19. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. Remember we read that passage last, last week? But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse 32. But Pharaoh hardened his heart, and he did not let the people go. Chapter 9, verse 34. When Pharaoh saw the rain and the hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. He did not let the sons of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. What do you think is going on here? What is this work. How discouraging for Moses. He's not getting Pharaoh to, to let them go. But what's the big work here? Think about the whole significance of this Exodus event and ask yourself this question. Suppose Pharaoh had let them go. Then what would have happened differently than if he had not let them go this way? Let's think about that question for a minute. Because there's part of the meaning of this whole elective disruption that's going on here. What would be the difference between the Pharaoh saying, okay, go ahead, got my permission, and, no, you don't have my permission, you stay in here. Boom. He gets nuked. Now, what's the difference between those two scenarios from, from the viewpoint, the big viewpoint of history and God's works? Okay, who's ultimately in charge? If Pharaoh had said yes, by whose permission would the Jews have their freedom? The work of man. Man's work would be the ultimate principle. The final say would be in man's mouth. But by having Pharaoh say, no, you're not, and breaking him, it becomes now the work of God, and God becomes the ultimate cause. So that's the difference. The exodus is like a modern political movement or a revolution. But it's a strange revolution because man isn't in control of it. God is in control of it. So there's one of the, one of the central points. Now, the Bible also is quick to add, because you notice every one of these verses we said, his heart was hardened or he hardened his heart. And then it always qualifies it. Remember what that clause was? What was that clause we saw? almost after every one of those, as the Lord had said. So, Pharaoh's hardening his heart, but God knows about it all along. 
So who's finally in charge of even Pharaoh hardening his heart? God is. You see the elective power of God? When God chooses to work his way in history, there's nothing that stands in his way. Even the rebellion against him has been ordained. Now that's the hard thing. Even the rebellion against him, he has ordained. Why has he ordained it? Let's think and review the question again. If Pharaoh had not hardened his heart and let the people go, you'd see this much of God. By letting Pharaoh harden his heart and nuking him, you see this much of God. So what is the controlling principle of history? The glory of God. Whether it's the plan of salvation, whether it's sanctification, whether it's creation, or whether it's the end judgment. The ultimate rationale between why history flows the way it does is for the glory of God. God will be glorified. And that's tough for us because we want to sort of have God on a committee and we want him to help us. I mean, we're willing to join God on a committee where we have a vote too. But God doesn't seem to work by committee. And this is offensive. This is deeply offensive to the flesh to deal with a, a lion that's not tame, good, and I have to trust his character instead of my plans on taming him. And this is why, I guess what, what I'm struggling to do here is, this is the nature of how the Old Testament looks at faith. It's a very meaty, powerful view of faith. It's not a mystical view of faith. Totally misinterpreted. And if you just read the New Testament, you can get kind of a gooey... Uh, mystical view of faith. And the Old Testament doesn't work that way. In the Old Testament, these guys had faith, but it was always this, this God that we can't control, whose character we have to trust, and, and, and he even hardens Pharaoh's heart. That's the one with whom we have to do. See, it's a big God. Let's uh, now look at some of the verses that show him with his hardening Pharaoh's heart. In, in Exodus 9... Chapter, uh, chapter 9, verse uh, 12. Who is the subject of the verb, verse 12? Now, is it Pharaoh hardening his heart, or is the Lord hardening Pharaoh's heart? You see, God is doing the hardening. Let's turn to chapter 10, verse 20. Who is hardening Pharaoh's heart? The Lord is hardening Pharaoh's heart. Verse 27. Who is hardening Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh or the Lord? The Lord is hardening Pharaoh's heart. Now, this is the mystery that we can't reconcile because remember we said last year that when we look at the attributes of God, the thing we always have to keep in mind is that God is infinite, we are creatures that are finite, and therefore these attributes, as for example the attribute of sovereignty, while they correspond to our choice, this is a creature characteristic, this is the creator characteristic, and there is a similarity between these. 
but there's not a one-to-one -one correspondence between these. And we said that's the doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God. The doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God doesn't say that God can't be known. It says, yes, he can be known, but when he is known, he's known only by what he reveals of himself to us. We're the receivers. We can't conquer him by our brains. We can't think through a perfect theology in which he fits. Because he's always there with stuff that we don't know about. Or maybe even never will know. Because of who he is. So, that's what's happening here. In some way, Pharaoh's choosing. But in another way, God has already chosen. And this is a sort of a picture of Satan. Pharaoh here is almost like a Satan picture. God is hardening Satan's heart. Let's think about how God hardens Satan's heart. How God hardens Pharaoh's heart. What was the processes that God used to harden a heart? This is where it gets kind of scary. Because the process happens in every church service. How did God harden Pharaoh's heart? By giving him more revelation. Think about it. Every time Moses walked into the Pharaoh, he operated as a god. You want to see this? Exodus chapter 7. When Moses starts out, God calls him as an analog to himself. Notice this. This is a real strange verse. Exodus 7, verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, See, I will make you as a god to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Now, in that case, one of the, if you read the context there, was Aaron had the mouth and Moses had the brains. Now, most of us, usually, we either have good mouths and good brains, but we usually don't have both. And too many of us have a diarrhea of the mouth and constipation of the brain. And so, the point here is, is that the prophet was the one who was speaking. Apparently, Aaron was the guy that was doing all the preaching, even though it says, kind of, you know, Moses, it was Moses talking to God about it. But Moses was reticent. We don't know why, whether he really had a speech impediment or not. But he, he confesses in an eloquent dialogue with God in Exodus 4 that I, I, am, I don't want to speak. I can't speak. I am not a speaker. I can't be the representative of this. And that's when God, in a verse that I, a friend of ours back years ago had a son who had a congenital defect. He had operation after operation to fix this, this little boy. And um, the mother, who's a Christian friend of mine, said she sat with her son time after time going through Exodus 4. You know what the verse she used? When God talked to Moses, and Moses was saying, I can't do it because I have a, an impediment. I'm just not normal. I can't speak loud. And God says, who made the blind and who made the deaf? I did. And it's such a comfort. And this woman would use that verse for years to help her son through all these trials of this trauma, of these constant visits to the hospital and the surgical procedures that had to be done. That uh, was a tremendous verse. But in Exodus chapter 7, verse 1, God says to Moses, you are going to be as a god to Pharaoh. Now, the problem here is, is that if Pharaoh's here and Pharaoh thinks he's God, and along comes Moses, and Moses actually has the word of God coming to him, Pharaoh's got a choice. Now, Pharaoh can go positive or he can go negative when faced with this. So what happens? Number one trial comes in. Which way does Pharaoh go? Pharaoh goes negative. Number two trial, what happens? Pharaoh goes negative. So what's happening to Pharaoh's heart? 
every time advanced revelation pours in, I reject it. More revelation. I reject it. More of the Word of God. I reject it. More of the Word of God. I reject it. Now, what kind of process is that analogous to today? If, we, if the Holy Spirit doesn't work with us and we submit, we harden our hearts every time we face God and the Word. And it's sort of scary, but this is how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. He didn't harden it out of contact with truth. He kept giving him more truth and more truth and more truth and Pharaoh rejected and he rejected and he rejected until finally he got himself in such a position that he could not believe. He had gotten to the point where I will destroy these people. I hate them. He had trained himself, so to speak, sanctified his rebellion until it became so much of a part of him that he would destroy Moses, the people, and everything else to do with this God that was challenging his authority. So that's one side of the question. And down at the bottom of page 50 in the notes, I sort of summarize it. So we learn in the last chapter when God elects, he intervenes in a situation already evil. Pharaoh, as a fallen creature, was already in rebellion before the hardening process began. What God did was to present him repeatedly with further revelation, which only served to strengthen his rebellion. Now what we want to do is we want to show how all this process of hardening Pharaoh's heart was linked to the covenant of Abraham. Now we just got through saying that God is incomprehensible. I will never figure him out completely. But God is rational. God is not inconsistent. We said when he gave the covenant to Abraham, remember the three blessings it was? The land, the seed, worldwide blessing. Okay? And we said that that contract was laid down in history so that we would have a yardstick and we could measure God's behavior. The Exodus is God's behavior. So, look how many times, let's start again in the chain reference, turn to Exodus chapter 2, and let's observe how many times during this Exodus event it is related to none other than the covenant with Abraham and this call. The Exodus is not unconnected in something that hangs by itself. Exodus chapter 2, verse 24. God heard their groaning. God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Chapter 3, verse 15. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, you shall say, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my memorial name to all generations. Exodus chapter 4, verse 5. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Exodus chapter 6, verse 2. God spoke further to Moses and said, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we'll get into that passage in just a moment. And I could, I got all the verses there on the top of page 51. If you want to look at the chain. But what I'm trying to say here, folks, is that the Bible presents a coherent, rational purpose to history. History is not a pile of marbles. There's a plan to it. Here's the application for our, us and our lives. 
if the big place has a plan, then that means your life and my life are planned. So we take comfort from the fact that if the big, the big place has a plan, we're part of the plan. Now, that's exactly opposite to the way we're taught in the world. The whole existentialist motif in the 20th century is that there is no plan. Everything's chaos. And then, gee, we wonder why the kids are on drugs. We wonder why nobody wants to learn anything. Well, why should you? I mean, the kids are smart. They've just taken up the worldview. The worldview says the whole idea, the whole picture is meaningless. So, hey, live that way then. Don't come to me and tell me I've got to do this, I've got to do that, this cause-effect, when you've just also told me that there's no big purpose or plan in my life. You can't have it both ways. So that's one of the things that the Scriptures give that nothing else gives. And we Christians, we Bible-believing Christians, are the only people left that have a rationale for the big picture. Nobody else has a plan out there. It's all guesswork. It's hot air. The baloney people. And then there's sober people that have really thought this through. The real dark people, the dark existentialists, they've thought it through and they've come to the conclusion there is no purpose. And what did Hemingway do to end his life? Put a shotgun in his mouth and blew his brains against the wall. Now that's the logical, that's the logical result. If I believe that way, it's probably I do. That's living consistently with your worldview. The mystery is why don't more people blow their brains out? I mean, I was just reading a statistic yesterday. You know how many suicides we've got in the military? The United States Air Force right now has a suicide every five days because of the way we've treated the military. Otherwise, the, demoral, the, the morale is so low that we're no, people willingly taking their lives once every five days. Now, that's the logical result of pressure. It's a logical result of tension. It's a logical result of not having the big idea. But we have the big idea here, and that's what God is saying. Moses, what you're observing here is a work that I planned back four generations ago. I haven't changed my plan. The big idea is still in place. Now what we want to do is come to the other half, in the remaining few minutes we've got tonight, we want to come to the other part of the meaning of the Exodus. We said actually there was election, and there's also justification. God not only elects, intervenes, separates sovereignly, but what did we argue about justification? What was necessary for God to come into the heart of a believer? God can't come into our hearts unless our hearts are made righteous in some way, unless we are credited with a righteousness. But we can't be, have a righteousness until God comes in our heart. So now what comes first? The chicken or the egg? That's the problem. And that was what separates Protestants and Catholics. Because Catholicism insists that God can't do anything until the heart is changed. So if God changes the heart, that's the source of righteousness. The Protestants say no. First, God has to make the person righteous judicially, and then he can do something in their hearts. So, then you can't have it both ways. I mean, that was the Protestant Reformation. Well, now, in the Exodus, something very similar happens. And we want to look at um, Exodus chapter 3. Because now God is going to take up residency in a sinful nation. And it's remarkable to see how he does this. Because this is analogous to himself taking up residency with us. 
You see, paganism, because it's built on unbelief, doesn't resolve guilt. Now, every man is guilty. All men, all women, deep in their heart of hearts, know very well they're sinners before God and have a residual guilt. Psychologists can see evidences of this, but they, uh, you know, Freud has his theory about, about it and somebody else, Adler, has his view and this and that. And there's all kinds of views of this. But basically, when you dig down deep in the heart, you find a mess. And the question is, what's, the, what's this mess all about? Well, the mess is that we are guilty before our Creator. That's the mess. And so, in page 51, again, quoting Rushdoony here, this has some very astute, don't agree with everything he says, but he has some astute things here. If you look at those two quotes on the mid part of page 51, we'll start to set up for Exodus 3, which we'll have to finish next time. For a man, with all the limitations of man, to claim to be as God is to indulge in a dangerous fantasy. For the state, with all the limitations of man compounded, but the power of the sword added to it, to claim to be as God is desperately dangerous and suicidal. This is the power of the grand pagan state. Now, the politics of the anti-Christian will thus be inescapably the politics of guilt. In the politics of guilt, man is perpetually drained in his social energy and cultural activity by his overriding sense of guilt and his masochistic activity. He will progressively demand of the state a redemptive role. What he cannot do personally, i.e. save himself, he demands that the state do for him so that the state, as man and large, becomes the human savior of man. And that's Egypt. That's an exact profile of Egypt. Pharaoh was the savior. Now along comes God. And God is going to live in this mess. And if you turn to Exodus chapter 3, verse 13, a revelation is made. And the question is that what is this new name of Jehovah? This is one of the most famous verses of all the Bible. Verse 13. Because it's when a man went face to face with God and asked him who he was. Moses said to God, Behold, I am going to the sons of Israel. I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they may say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you will say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now the question that Bible scholars have tried to ask is, what is this I am? Where does it come from? Remember I said back last night or the night, the week before, I said, watch the burning bush. Remember the burning bush incident? Moses was out there and he saw this bush burning and the bush wasn't consumed. He said, what is going on here? And so he goes over and he, God speaks to him out of the fire. Well, to make a long story short, what we have here in this name, and we'll, get, we'll have to start with this next time, but the name I am appears to have this connotation. I am understood with you. Just as God was in that burning bush, the bush being almost a picture of Israel, in their affliction, God spoke out of the fire, I am with you. There's always the connotation. And this is why justification enters in, because a holy God can't be with you unless somehow he's, he, God, has dealt with a righteousness issue. I am with you. Now here's what that name looks like. In the Hebrew, 
the verb to be looks like this. And like all verbs, it goes from right to left. You read Hebrew that way. So you start here and go left. And you have prefixes on these verbs. So if you've done Latin or Greek, you know, there's prefixes and suffixes. And if you uh, put a prefix like this, it means he is. Well, now, interestingly, down through history, what the Hebrew name for God looked like this. And in Hebrew, there's no vowels. So these are all consonants. And so, reading from right to left, this is Y or J is in English, H, and this is W or V, and this is H. And what has happened over the years is that uh, and many, th there would be these little pointers and these little vowels stuck in there, and people would remember that and they'd write it in the text. Problem was, the Jews were so afraid of this name that they wouldn't pronounce it. And down over the centuries, they lost the vowels. So nobody knows where the vowels are in this name. All we know is it's called the tetragrammaton, meaning tetra, four. There's four letters there. And it's anybody's guess how to pronounce it. So what the English Bible translators did is they took the words out of Adonai, which is the word for master, and they made this thing sort of a short A, which became an E, and this O, and this is kind of an AE type sound, and they injected those vowels in here. And if you read now from right to left, what does that spell? J, E, H, O, V, and this eighth sound, A-H. But Jehovah can't be his name because those vowels that you see in that word didn't come from the same noun. They were borrowed from another noun that means master. So, that gets back then, well, what is this? I always like to bring this up every time a Jehovah's Witness comes to the door. Um, the point is that his, the, the, only, the closest pronunciation to this that anybody has come up with is to, instead of trying to do this, this stuff, is to go back to the verb to be, take the hint from the verb to be and its vowels, and then you come up with Y or J, uh, Yahweh. And that's why in scholarly work you'll see the God of the Old Testament is called Yahweh. And that's because they're filling the vowels back up from the verb to be, not borrowing the vowels from Adonai to get it stuck in there. So, in the King James text, there's a, the translating team, the teams, plural, that did that, had a convention. And if you look in your King James Bibles, and I think the American Standard Version, I don't know what the, the committees, you have to read, and translations, it's becoming increasingly important to read the preface, because in the preface to your Bible, you'll see where the translating team gives their conventions, the translating conventions, and you want to read that. But in the King James, the translating convention was this, that Adonai, whenever that occurred, would be translated like this in the English text, capital L, lowercase o-r-d. Whenever this thing was translated, they wanted to distinguish that from Adonai, so the translating team would put capital L-O-R-D. When I first became a Christian, I read that, I thought you were supposed to, you know, when you read it out loud, and then you read that word louder. Well, I didn't know anything about that, but 
what that was wasn't that at all. It was a translating convention. So you could distinguish those two. It was the team was just telling you. We, at this point, weren't dealing with Adonai. We're dealing with the Tetragrammaton. And then, of course, you have God. But that's the story of God's name. And we're going to start there next time because that name, I am, occurs and becomes a code. And the remarkable thing is, you often hear it say, oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. What we're going to do next week is we're going to go over to the New Testament and find out that Jesus takes that code and at various points in his ministry, he drops that code word out. And every time Jesus drops the code word out, there's all kinds of ramifications, powerful ramifications in the immediate environment. So, it's, a, it's one of these small little things, but it's a sign of who wrote this book and how over the centuries he was self-consistent, no mistakes, plans still in progress. Father, we thank you for your book and we thank you for your plan of history. And we thank you most of all in an age that has no meaning, no purpose, and man's plans have fallen apart, that we have something that doesn't fall apart, which is your sovereign plan, and that we can trust you as the good but not tame lion. In Christ's name, amen.